this morning, and he said, Pastor, I hope it's all right. I wanted to see what the new sanctuary looked like from inside the pulpit, so I walked up after the service, and I said, of course, it's all right. In fact, I'll give you full permission to do that anytime you want. You don't need my permission. Uh, he said a couple things. He said, first of all, what's it like standing there all the time with that great big mushroom over your head? And, uh, and he said, how much does that thing weigh anyway? The builder told us it weighed 350 pounds, so I can assure you if it comes down, I'm finished. But uh, I really don't even think about it most of the time. He also pointed out something, and it's why I'm saying this. He said, you didn't tell us about the plaque that's on the pulpit. And indeed, I didn't, so I'll tell you about it. There's a little metal plaque right here on the pulpit, permanently fixed. It was put there the night of our dedication service, and I wanted you to know what it says. It's actually one phrase from John 12:21. It says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's here as a permanent word of exhortation to the man that stands where I stand, whoever he may be, for however many years. It is to show you, Jesus Christ, that this pulpit is here. So let's turn today and look at God's Word and listen to Jesus Christ as He exhibits for us a great and penetrating word of understanding in this Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying in Matthew 7. I'm going to read Matthew 7, the words of Jesus Himself. I'll read just through verse 11, 7 through 11 of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus talked last time about wisdom and discernment in relating to other people, both believers and unbelievers. Now He's talking about the discernment we need to relate to our Father. Listen to Him. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? This is the Word of God. I would say that nearly all of you probably know the names of Corey and Betsy Ten Boom from the true life story of The Hiding Place. These two Dutch sisters and their father lived in Amsterdam during World War II when that city and all of Holland were occupied by the Nazis. And they hid Jewish neighbors and some folks they'd never seen before nor met in a secret room of their house because, of course, these folks were in great danger. The Ten Booms' secret, their hiding place, came out, and although the folks hiding in it were not found and taken away, the Ten Booms were. Corey and Betsy and her father were taken to concentration camps. The two women went to Ravensbrück, one of the horrible places created for those who opposed the Nazi regime. After many months of very brutal, hard work, in the cold, in unheated barracks with 
terrible food, Betsy was in frail health, and she didn't know it, but close to death. They were both holding on to the Lord in that time and even leading others to see Christ and how he might be in a place as awful as that. And at one point, Betsy told Corey that she'd been praying, and she prayed a very specific request to God, asking him that both of them might be released from that terrible place by New Year's Day, 1945. That was a few months away. A couple months later, just before Christmas of 1944, Betsy Ten Boom died in the camp hospital. Two days before New Year's, Corey Ten Boom was unconditionally released from the prison camp. Something made even more marvelous when later on it was disclosed that that was a so-called clerical error. Women of her age were supposed to have been executed. Now, my point in reminding you of that story is to ask you, do you believe God answered Betsy's prayer? Certainly, the answer was rather different than they might have thought. Instead of walking the streets of Amsterdam again, Betsy was walking the streets of glory with her Savior. Corey was released and was given many years to have a fruitful ministry that reached people all around the world. But the answer of that liberation was a different one than might have been expected when Betsy said, Corey, we're going to be set free by New Year's Day. The text we have in front of us is not the first teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about prayer. There's been instruction about that before in chapter 6. Jesus took people who, for whom prayer meant primarily something you do kind of by rote, speaking repetitions, vain words perhaps that didn't have any sincerity or feeling invested in them. And he said, look, be careful. That's not how to pray. And And then he led them, of course, into the example of the Lord's Prayer that was there in chapter 6. Now the subject of prayer arises again, and this time it's not about technique or what words to say as much as it is about whom we pray to. In Matthew 7, 11, there are three words carefully underlined and even circled in my Bible because they are, to me, three words that unlock a great deal of about prayer. In fact, I think in those three words, there is contained a principle about a perfect heavenly Father who is ready to do far greater good to those who trust in Him in the name of Jesus than even those people are ready to receive much of the time. The three words are, how much more? I'm going to speak to you centered upon those words and the thought they bring to us, but these are the three thoughts I want to have you see today. First, that God's answers to prayer are rarely what we initially ask for. Secondly, that God's answers to prayer may at first appear to be worthless or even harmful. And thirdly, that God answers His children's prayers according to the how much more principle. 
The first observation to make is that God's answers to prayer are rarely what we initially ask for. I believe there are millions of people, Christians included, many of them even very experienced, long-time Christians, who have never gotten past thinking of prayer in some manner as the concept of a vending machine. Now, many people deny this if you said it to them that bluntly. Oh, I know that prayer isn't a vending machine. And yet, if you went to how they practiced it and talked to them about their enthusiasms or disappointments or just blasé attitude about prayer, you would find that really they persist in their lives despite biblical teaching to the contrary in coming to prayer and saying, why prayer is about getting the things I want from God. I asked God to spare my mother's life from cancer. She died. I asked God to help me pass the crucial exam in my college major course. I got a C plus. I prayed to get that job I was seeking. Somebody else got it. And people conclude, well, God didn't exactly give what I requested, and therefore prayer is at best some kind of an emotional solace to people But it really isn't about getting the things that you might want or need to get. Because in my experience, prayer doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work. We are very pragmatic people, we Americans. We like instant and measurable results. Our prayers are mostly about give me, comfort me, heal me, spare me. There's lots of me's in them. But it's effectiveness that we want. It's practicality. I think that for some people, if you go in our basement, there's a couple of old vacuum cleaners. We seem to go through vacuum cleaners. And they still work, but they don't seem like they work well. The the suction's not as good anymore. The cord is kind of all kinked up, and it just isn't what you want it to be. So we go buy another one. But that one still works, so we think... We better put it in the basement in case we need a spare. Well, we've got about five spares down there, I think, right now. And and there are people who think that prayers like that, like an appliance, uh, once in a great while, maybe it works fabulously, but much of the time it just doesn't seem like it works. And then along comes Jesus with a promise like this, sweeping, no qualifications given, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. He was certainly talking about prayer. No question about it. And he gives this broad, unqualified promise. And you say, wow. It really sounds like Jesus said I was supposed to be able to ask for whatever I wanted, and I would get it. Why doesn't it work? Well, the promise of Jesus is not an invitation for you to insert your quarter into God's prayer vending machine and expect that he owes you in return any old trinket or toy or gift or candy bar that your imagination said that you needed at that moment in your life. Even if it was something very important, even if it was something that was very, very good and moral and upright and holy. God definitely answers all prayer. He certainly answers all prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. I firmly believe that. 
But the fact is, he rarely does so in exact conformity to the thing I began to pray about. Me, the preacher. God doesn't answer my prayers in exact conformity to where I start. Does that help you out a little bit? I've been at it a lot of years. Why is that? Why don't my prayers work better if working is the crucial test? Well, it really isn't that mysterious. The answer is that I and you simply do not know much of the time what God's very best for our lives actually is. And so we start out praying for wrong things, good things perhaps, wonderful things. But they just may not be the things that God plans to do and in the timing in which he's going to do them. Oh, we assume we know what's needed. We always assume we know. The infinite God who made the universe, well, he knows a lot, but I know more. I know what I need. Here it is, God. Deliver it, please. And we assume so much and we are so proud and we are so arrogant that we actually have the effrontery to get angry with the God of the universe when he doesn't deliver on time. You see what that says about you? I don't like what it says about me. Even mature Christians often don't pray entirely for the will of God as he plans to do it in their lives, in the, in the moment of some great need in their life. Now listen to Jesus as he comes here with these three verbs strung together in verse 7. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. He could have just said ask. Why did he have to say it three different ways? Unless the sense is being given to us here that we must press ahead with energy and faith and perseverance, that prayer isn't just Ask, okay, here it is, God, please deliver. Thank you very much. You know, it's wonderful. Shop on the Internet these days. I've discovered a, a book source for discounted Christian books. It's very dangerous for me to have discovered this. I, on Tuesday, literally, this works. On Tuesday at 10 a.m., I can submit an order for a book I need, a commentary I might need. And on Wednesday at 2 o'clock, I get it. Incredible. Now, that's the way some people think prayer is supposed to work. Jesus says, no, there's a process here. Think of a little child asking his mother a question. Four, five, six years old in the house thinks that mom's in a room. Mom, mom, mom's not answering. He gets up. He, mom, where are you? Mom, three or four rooms of the house. Where are you, mom? Finally, he comes to the locked bathroom door. Mom, mom. He probably doesn't really need anything all that much. What he really needed to know was where mom is. He got a little frightened when she wasn't there. But he had to search. He had to look. He had to go after the answer to his problem. I think that prayer that asks and seeks and knocks and persists in faith can be compared a little bit to our searches for employment that many adults certainly go through in various ways in their lives. You should begin a job search with prayer. You should pray all the way through, in fact. And you might begin and say, Lord, I need a job. You know I have a family. I have to pay bills. Lord, help me. 
I need employment. Here's what I think I can do. In fact, there's a job at that company over there, that particular company. I'd like that job. Lord, help me get that job. Well, is that all you do to get employment? Maybe you think you'd be a great man or woman of faith if you prayed that prayer and then sat down and waited for the telephone to ring. I would say you'd not be too wise. You ought to make a resume. You ought to go knock on some doors. You ought to send that resume around, make some calls, network with some friends. You hear this from somebody, you ought to call over there, call over there. You know the process, how it goes, and sometimes it's long and complicated and frustrating, but at some point you get offered a job, and maybe you come and remember that you prayed, and you say, thank you, Lord, I think you must have been part of this. Yes, he was. His providence was working the whole time. But God wanted you to invest yourself and pursue the goal and discover what he had for you to discover. And probably it was something fairly different than what you started out thinking was going to be the answer. And most prayer works like that, you see. God doesn't simply drop his many promises down like showers of rain upon our lazy heads. Intercessory prayer is a way of putting his children to the test sometimes. In James chapter 4, verse 2, we read, You do not have because you do not ask. I think it might be appropriate and in context to amend James or at least interpret that verse, James 4, 2, by saying, You do not have because you ask foolishly, flippantly. You asked once and you thought your idea of it was going to be the answer. You didn't care enough to ask and seek and knock and go on to discover the depths of your father's mind in the matter. I realize James said fewer words than that. But I think that's what he meant. Prayer involves some degree of commitment to a discipline of intimate, extended conversation with the Lord as the Spirit of God works to start changing my mind and my will and my expectations. And he says, you know, you don't even have an idea what I'm going to do here. Let me shape you. Let me turn you over in this direction. You've got to look in a completely different direction than you're looking. And I'm going to show you great and wonderful things that you don't even expect. But if you're stuck on your initial childish and and foolish demands, I can't work with you. Luke chapter 18, verse 7, has Jesus asking a rhetorical question. You know what that is, young people? A question that the person knows the answer when he asks it. In fact, he answers it. But Jesus asks that kind of a question there in Luke 18, 7. He says, shall not God answer his elect, his chosen ones? who cry to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? Jesus answered the question. He said, he will see that they get justice, and quickly too. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Some people think that last part doesn't have to do with the other. I think it has everything to do with it. He's saying, of course, God will answer prayer, but... Are his people really looking for his answers? Are they really trusting in him? Ready to believe that they don't understand the situation as they think they do? In a nutshell, Jesus said there in Luke 18 that the problem is not, never is, 
a lack of God's willingness to respond to those who are his beloved in Jesus, those who from all eternity he knew and chose and designed to work in. That's never the problem. The breakdown, if there is one, occurs in our lackadaisical failures to submit our minds and our wills and our persevering conversation with him to the process of discovering the great things that he wants to do. And that's why God's answers to prayer are rarely what we initially ask for. Secondly, our text teaches us that God's answers to prayer may for a time even appear harmful or worthless. You say, where is that? Well, verses 9 to 11, Jesus gives us these interesting comparisons. Two pairs of things, a stone and a loaf of bread, a fish and a snake. Everyone who understands this text, I believe, in the sense of what he was saying, was he was talking about pairs of things that look outwardly very similar, inwardly are very different. A loaf of bread, of course, is a a good and wonderful thing, nourishing. You can eat it. You can be sustained by it. Palestinian bread was was usually not flat. Sometimes it was, but often it was sort of a, a low, rounded top loaf that could look very much like a, a seaside stone, you know, washed round. A fish, same, at least, I don't know you biologists, don't come after me, but same general classification of creatures as a reptile or a snake. At least it's it's not a beaver or a bear. And you say, well, you know, from a little distance or if your eyesight was bad, you might have a, a reptile there, a, even a poisonous serpent, and you could think it was a fish. That's the point. He's saying the gifts that your father might give you might appear to your uninstructed and immature vision to be harmful things. You might go to him for nourishment and you feel like you've gotten a mouthful of gravel to crunch on. But no, your father doesn't do things that way. That is a deceiving appearance. It's an appearance only. Your heavenly father doesn't act that way. And that's where we come in this text to the concept of who are we praying for to, after all, our Father. Do you really understand what that means? We've sung the hymn. I think it's a favorite hymn. Many people love it. I'm a child of the King. Do you really understand what that means? Do you really understand that that makes you one of the privileged people of planet Earth? Do you really understand what it means that you have a heavenly Father. Jesus uses logic here. He argues from the lesser thing to the greater thing. He says, look, you know what human fathers... Now, there are human fathers who could harm their children. There are human fathers in whom sin breaks out and they neglect their children or they they do wrong by them. Sure. But what's the fundamental instinct of a father? Even if they're sinful, even if they perform poorly, what is the fundamental instinct of any father toward his offspring? Generally, It's to die for them. It's to work hard on their behalf. It's to do good towards them, to be kind, to show that they are loved. And Jesus says, look, sinful men can do that. And they they do it perhaps well and perhaps not so well, but they do it. 
Do you honestly believe that your perfect father in heaven will do anything less than that? I so well remember 45 years ago. In fact, just a while ago, I was sorting out some papers. I tend to save classic issues of things, uh, of, of magazines documenting great events in history, or if I think it's going to be a great event, a presidential inauguration to 9-11, something like that. Not long ago, I came across a Life magazine from 1962 in a pile of things I had, it, pictures of the Kennedy administration. Uh, I love it. You know, I open it up, and, and I'm 13 years old again, and, and reliving that time it's pictures in this Life magazine of John John and Caroline visiting the Oval Office when their father was president. You, some of you who are older remember this. Pictures of these two little toddlers with the President of the United States holding their arms and swinging them around like this or playing peekaboo under his desk while bemused staffers stood by, no doubt looking at their watches, saying the Prime Minister of Great Britain is out there waiting. It didn't matter. The father was with his children. And they had the privilege of access to the center of, of the greatest seat of power in the Western world and the prime minister and the king and the queen and the United Nations could cool their heels because the father was with his children. Do you ever see yourself in that picture with your heavenly father? You have the privilege of access to the king of the universe if you know his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are under his blood. Hebrews 4.16 promises Christians who are under the blood of Christ that they may come boldly to the throne of grace and find grace to help in their time of need. That is exactly the concept Jesus is drawing on here when he talks about your heavenly father in Matthew 7. You are God's chosen adopted child in Christ. Don't you know how precious you are to him? Don't you understand how much he had to give for you by sending his son to a cross and a tomb where he would break through and rise again? He singled you out. He knew you. He planted the seeds of faith in your heart that first responded to Christ and said, Jesus, my Lord, I believe in you. How do you think that faith got there? Your father put it there. Now, do you think that this eternal father, the all-wise, all-loving, all-gracious, all-sovereign God, is somehow going to trick you? Is going to put a rattlesnake in your bed? Is that what you think? Well, you say, hey, wait a minute, you don't know my life. When I heard the doctor's verdict of cancer, that's what it felt like, a rattlesnake in the bed. When my child's life was snuffed out by a car accident, that's what it felt like. When my marriage exploded because of infidelity, I sure thought God was pulling a fast one there. Well, we disciples of Jesus Christ are being instructed to go to our Father. Not a sinful father, a perfect father. To take a hold of his hand and to hold on. And to ask him and seek from him and persist in asking him 
how we might be shaped by what's going on in my life today and what he's doing and what he wants us to expect so that he can, by his Holy Spirit, give shape to us and help us to realize and see that what he's doing is all a part of his dedication to bless us and not harm us. Thirdly, God answers prayer for his children by what I call the principle of how much more. You see, people of any religion pray to their God, small g. There's only one God. Many religions don't pray to him. Allah is not God. Many people pray to all kinds of idols. But if you pray to some God, you pray in accordance with what your idea of God actually is. If he's unpredictable, vengeful, angry, something like that, that's going to condition all the ways that you pray. But if your God is the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know that he is gracious. Oh, yes, he's just. He won't toy with sin, but he also is ready to deal with sin in a just way. He's merciful. And so you pray according to what you know about God. And that's what Jesus has in mind when he says, how much more? These human fathers, you know, they can do it a little bit, but how much more? Will your perfect father give good gifts to you? And if you understand that prayer is a matter of waiting on and listening to and learning from the revelation of this Father, and yes, this book is part of prayer too, you know, then you're not approaching prayer as so many people do and saying, prayer, oh yes, that's kind of like rubbing the lamp, you know, Aladdin's lamp, <laughs> rub it and see if the genie pops out and gives me my requests. What an insult. What an insult to God to have that kind of a concept of prayer. Jesus said, I want you to ask and seek and knock and know that by prayer as you hold on and you seek the Father, that original request of yours is probably going to be changed and bent and transformed and more and more God's all-wise benevolent plan is going to come into view. And you'll understand that it's something quite different than what you started asking for. In Romans 8.26, Paul is addressing believers. He's not addressing atheists. When he says, we do not know what we ought to pray for. Isn't that astounding? He's telling believers, we don't even know what we ought to ask from God. But he says, you know this? The Spirit of God intercedes for us with groans that cannot be uttered. Paul, too, had that idea that prayer is a process not by which we bend God's ear and bend God's will to do what we want Him to do, but rather it's a school in which the Holy Spirit is our great instructor teaching us what the will of God is. You see, there are Christian martyrs who in past times set off for the mission field, I'm sure with high hopes, knowing they were called by God, praying, oh God, use me to evangelize many and build up your work and that churches may prosper in the place I'm going. And they got to the field and they preached for two months and they were burned at the stake. Did their God hear their prayer? There are Christians with tragedy and trouble and constant cares and obstacles in their lives. Does God hear their prayer? Is he listening? 
Isn't he, in fact, answering us all the time according to a wisdom which is his that we usually are out of tune with? I think of prayer a lot like what Jacob was doing in Genesis 32. Do you remember that scene? It was the climactic hour of Jacob's life. He had to go back and face a brother that he had cheated, and he was pretty sure that his brother was going to kill him the next day. And there he was by the river Jabbok alone at night. You might have called it a dream or a nightmare. The word gives us to believe that a real personage came and wrestled with Jacob, a man he's called. But if you read the account and understand the power of it, that was something more than just a a stranger walking by in the night. It was either the angel of the Lord or somehow an incarnation of God. And they wrestled together and wrestled and fought. And and the angel said, let me go. And Jacob finally said a wonderful thing. I will not let you go until you bless me. You see, that's what we have to say when we pray. God, I'm holding on. I know you're going to bless me because that's who you are. I know you've got something fine for me. And it, it doesn't look like it right now. But I'm holding on. And I'm trusting you, and I know you're going to deal with this situation, so show me what you're doing and teach me what it is until I can rejoice in it. John Stott wrote wisely this, I quote, The reason why God's giving us his best things depends on our asking for them is neither because God is ignorant before we inform him of those things, nor reluctant until we persuade him to do those things. Stott said, the requirement to pray has more to do with us than it does with him. The question is not whether he is ready to give. It is always a question of whether we are ready to receive. That's exactly right. And I have learned that if God pledged himself to give me every stupid thing I asked him for, I probably would destroy myself in a matter of weeks you understand that? We pray for so many wrong things, or at least we start out wrong. And what we need to pray is, please, Lord, spare me from receiving every immature idea that I ask you for. Lord, what I really want is to discover your will. And it'll be good, and it will be perfect, and it will be something different but more wonderful than what I could ever think. And I might have to go through hardship until I understand it. The how much more principle is summarized in a benediction Paul gave in Ephesians 3.20. I hope this would be a banner under which you would give yourself anew to the privilege of God's child in prayer. Here it is. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work in us to him, Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, now and forever. Amen. Amen. And amen. Let us pray. Father, we have so much to learn about how to talk to you, about how foolishly we talk to you. Teach us, Lord. Instruct us. We are but children. We want to hold on and learn and and grow And you promised to do this. Give us the faith to venture forth with you in prayer, to persevere, and to learn those 
lessons so that we might give you all praise for the way you work in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.